And please be seated. God is good. All the time. All the time. time. Amen. Hey, we don't normally stand on ceremony too much here at Faith Covenant Church, but this is a special day for me. I get to introduce our speaker for this morning. So if you give me just an extra minute or two here to introduce our speaker for us this morning, I appreciate your indulgence. Born Rudolf Wilhelm Traugat Nothofer. <laughs> July 27, 1937, the OG Nothofer started out as a slightly dorky looking German missionary kid <laughs> born in Japan just prior to World War II. After surviving the war, his family came to the United States as refugees. Arriving on October 31st, 1949, and my dad reminded me, oh, I gave it away, he's my dad, um, <laughs> reminded me that this next Thursday marks the seventh and 70th anniversary of their arrival into the United States when they came into San Francisco through the Golden Gate Bridge. Several years later, at age 16, he stayed behind in the United States when his parents returned to the mission field in Japan. And after a couple challenging years on his own, he ended up joining the United States Army and served overseas in his home country of Germany. And many claim to fame is that while he was there, he actually transported Elvis Presley onto a ship while he was touring in Europe. That might have had something to do with today's sermon title. I don't know. (laughs) After the military, he attended Biola University in Southern California, where he began to sense a call to full-time ministry. And while he was there, he sang in the Biola Men's Quartet, and he was given the nickname The Throat (laughs) because of his booming tenor voice. You may have already heard it in the room this morning. Through the years, he would use his singing voice to bless many people during worship and in concerts and through his own gift that he developed called a sermon in song, recording two albums along the way. He married his high school sweetheart, Sandra Ankrum, my mom, and together they (laughs) served life in ministry over the years, having two kids and five grandkids. He attended Talbot and North Park seminaries, is ordained as a pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church, served five different churches in Illinois, Minnesota, California, and ultimately planted a church in Phoenix, Arizona, where he served as the lead pastor for 18 years before retiring in 1992. In retirement, he served two additional churches as transitional pastor, First Covenant Church right here in Seattle, Turlock Covenant Church down in California, and after retiring to Sun City Grand, Arizona for 10 years, they ultimately moved to a covenant community, living community in San Diego, where they reside today. I would suggest to you this morning that I think that you will find his preaching voice powerful, passionate, and perhaps even prophetic, and yet also compassionate insightful, and compelling. Mm -hmm. Growing up, it was an honor to sit under his preaching and teaching, and it's a joy to be able to share him with you today. And I invite you to welcome my dad, Bill Nothelfer. Oh, wow. A lot to live up to. <clears throat> I'm going to move this back a little bit because for an 80 
22-year-old that looks a little ominous. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, I want to begin by thanking you for uh, loving and caring for our kids. Uh, when you do that, you love and care for me and for Sandra. Sandra, stand up for a minute. She's, uh, she's, really the, she's really the main reason why Kurt exists today and why he is who he is. Yeah. In fact, all you mothers, God bless you all. You are a gift to us. Uh, please join me in a little prayer. Lord, thank you that we can be here together. Thank you for your great love for each one of us. Help us to bask in that love and also be motivated by that love to be all that you have created us to be to your glory. And so to that end, bless our time as we look at your word and are reminded of how good you really are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, as you've already discovered, I'm a, I'm a naturalized citizen of uh, the United States. Born in Japan, lived there the first 10 years of my life, born into a German family. Now, there are a lot of people over the years who've asked me, what was it like to be raised in a German family? And I always say, well, let me tell you a little story, and then you will know. And the story goes like this. Papa is dying. And all the kids are coming home, and they are all around the bed. And finally, the eldest son, son steps forward, and he says, Papa, is there one more thing that we can get for you? Is there something special you would like? And Papa inhales, and he says, Ah, oh, yeah, I smell something delicious and familiar. It is your mama's apple strudel. I would like to have just one more piece of your mama's apple strudel. The son says, no problem, Papa, and he marches into the kitchen, and he doesn't come out, and he doesn't come out. Finally, he comes out. He's looking all forlorn, and Papa looks up, and he says, son, what's the matter? You look so forlorn, and, and where's the strudel? The son says, Papa, you know how mama is. So practical and so strict. She says, the strudel is for after the funeral. <laughs> now you know what it's like to be raised in a German home. Now in 1947, after the Second World War, we were privileged to come to America. And we were refugees, basically. And we were able to come to a, a new land and a new life, a wonderful land, a, a kind of grace land, and uh, a land of freedom and opportunity and promise. But you know, that also meant huge changes for us. We had to learn a new language, English. Now, those of you who have spoken English all your life, you have no idea how hard your language is to really learn. No idea. Tough one. 
we had to learn about new food. You know, in 1947, sushi was not a big deal here. No, 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 we had to learn about hot dogs and hamburgers and pizza and uh, apple pie. Still my favorite to this day, apple pie. And we had to learn about new currency, right? Yen and uh, Deutschmarks just didn't cut it anymore. No, we had to learn what a dollar was and 50 cent piece and a quarter and a dime and a nickel and a penny. In fact, the week after we were here, it was my oldest sis older sister's birthday, and I had picked out this pink, beautiful pink little cake, and I wanted to buy it for my sister for her birthday, and my mother said, no, no, Rudy. That's what I was called before I became Bill. He said, no, no, Rudy. Uh, you don't want to waste your money on a cake. I'll bake a cake for Anne. But I snuck back into the store, and I went up to that display case, and I pointed to that cake, and I held up my dollar bill that I had gotten on the ship by some wonderful American gentleman who gave each of us a dollar. And I held it up, and the lady took my dollar, and she boxed up my little cake, and she gave it to me, and I ran out to my mother, and I said, I got the cake. And she says, no, why did you do that? I could have baked the cake. And she says, how much was it? And so I lifted up my hand with the change that the woman had given me from the dollar, and it was two 50-cent pieces. America was wonderful. <laughs> Graceland. We had to learn to wear new clothes, right? Lederhosen and uh, kimonos were not the in thing. And we had to learn new traditions and special days and, and festivals and events and experiences. In fact, it's ironic, we arrived on Halloween Day, 9, October the 31st, 1947. And that once we were all unloaded from the ship, we were sitting out by the end of the pier, Pier 39 in San Francisco Harbor, and uh, we were sitting there waiting to be picked up with our few belongings that we had. And uh, there was a mix-up and there was a delay and so evening was setting in. And all of a sudden we saw all these people running around with their costumes and their dress-up. <laughs> and my mother, who was always the most curious, immediately got up, walked into the street, accosted a guy walking there and he says, what is this? What is this? And she pointed at all the kids and all the costumes, and, and he said, well, it's Halloween. And she said, Halloween? What is Halloween? And the guy kind of looked at her, then he looked at her again, then he kind of looked around, and finally came back. He threw up his hands, and he said, lady, Halloween is Halloween. And <laughs> off he went. <clears throat> I learned about Halloween. Man, next year I was in costume and I was collecting that candy. Yes. <laughs> ah, we were in Graceland. Mm-hmm. We had to learn a lot of new rules and laws and regulations and requirements and educational system. I mean, this was a new world and a new life. 
And as wonderful as it was, sometimes it was complicated and sometimes it was confusing. And on occasion, it was even embarrassing because you did the wrong, dumb thing, right? Part of being in a new life and a new land. And we wished we had some kind of guidebook, you know, some kind of instructional manual that would help you to navigate. Like something like, you know, how to live life in America. Wouldn't that have been great? Have a book like that. It would have been wonderfully helpful and very instructive and could have saved us a lot of stress. Well, see, in a way, that's what the book of Deuteronomy really is. And not just the book of Deuteronomy, but the book is within a greater book. In fact, the whole book that we're talking about. It's really, in one way, a kind of instruction manual or a guidebook given to the people of Israel and then later on given to all of us as the body of Christ, the church, how to navigate in their new land, this promised land, this land of Canaan, this land which was given to them by God, this grace land. I love that. Grace land. We're living in grace land. You remember, these people were in slavery for 400 years. In Egypt, living in bondage and servitude and oppression. And in the midst of their despair, you remember, they cried out to God, and God heard them. Isn't that great? God heard them. You know, God still hears all our cries. He never stops hearing. And he heard them. And he sent them a liberator. He sent them a deliverer. He sent them a savior by the name of Moses. And he came and he negotiated their release. And he brought them out of the land of Egypt through the wilderness experience and all those tough learning moments that they had to have. And finally into their new land and their new life. Wow, what a story. And as you know, this is not just Israel's story. No. It's really an analogy or life illustration of every person who finds God. Every person who discovers God and the new life in him. Everyone who has come to faith in him. It's their story. It is like living a new life in a new land, in a new realm, in a new sphere of existence where God is always present, where he is king and Lord. And you know, this is really my story too. Oh yeah, not just from Japan to America, no, but much more importantly, my faith life from B.C. before Christ, and I had one, Yes, I did, even though I was a missionary kid. I had a BC life and into my AC life after Christ. It's my story, and it's your story if you have come to faith. You see, when you become a follower, a Christ follower, and you end up with a brand new life in a brand new land, 
in God's kingdom, in God's realm, in God's sphere, that's your story too. Out of bondage into freedom. We sang about it all morning long. Now, this book is full of all kinds of instruction and counsel and advice about how to live life in this new land, this grace land, this new realm and sphere of existence. And this morning, I want to just isolate one key chapter in, the, in this instruction manual and see what advice Moses really gives us and gives the people to whom he's writing initially about how to live life in Graceland, the land of freedom and promise and purpose and hope. Four quick things that Moses instructs the people. First, he says, when you come into this new land, love God first. Love God first. And so he says this in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one Lord. See, there was idolatry everywhere. All kinds of gods that people were trying to put their faith into. And Moses reminds them, we only have one God. Listen, we live in an age of idolatry. We have one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Wow. What is Moses saying? Put God first. If we really want to live life at its best and fullest and most satisfying, we need to love God first. Love him with your whole heart and soul and strength. Oh, I love that. It's like put your total concrete self into it. Give it everything you got. If you're going to love God, love him all you can. You remember who else said that? Yeah, Jesus. Guy came up to him and said, hey, what are the two most important things in life? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then you can love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, we want to live, if we want to live life with meaning and purpose and fulfillment and success, we need to give God the priority. We need to love him first because we only worship what we love. And there is a lot of worshiping going on out there in the world that is not of God. Love is the key. Isn't that what the Bible says? God is love. Not love is God. Our culture wants to worship love. You can't worship love. You can only worship God because he is love. And love is the key to life and ultimately everything up and, and, the, and, and life is ultimately everything about love. There, and there is no real horizontal love unless there is, first of all, vertical love. 
Dr. Aaron Stern, who is a professor at Columbia and then later at Stanford, once wrote a book that really kind of attracted my attention. It was entitled, Me, the Narcissistic American. Isn't that an interesting title? We ought to all read it. Mm, a lot of truth there. And he says in the book, he says, the crisis that we face as a nation and a culture and a society is that we do not know how to love. And we need to recapture that. If there is to be any hope for the future and for our world. Wow. That was a sound diagnosis. The problem with Stern is he had no answer. This book has the answer. Love God first. And why love God first? You know why? Because he first already loved us. Think about that. Hmm? Everyone in this room, every one of you, are not only loved by God right now, but he loved you before you ever loved him. And if you ever abandon him and desert him, he will still love you. That's our God. So I love God. Because he first loved us. So you see, it's not, it's not a legalistic requirement. It's not kind of raw necessity or religious duty. No, it is love born out of love. It is the kind of love on a human level that a parent experiences with their child and a child with their parents. It's natural. It's normal. It's the way we were built. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. It's never hard to love someone who really loves us. See? And when we know that we are loved by God, then it is natural and normal to want to respond in love to him. And love always results in obedience and faithfulness. They, they, they are interrelated. So, want to be a good husband? Want to be a good wife? Want to be a good father or mother or parent or grandparent or brother or sister or friend or neighbor or employee? or employer, love God first. Make that your priority. Reset your agenda so there's time for you to do that. And I will guarantee you that God will enable you to love all the people you need to love in a wonderful and wholesome way. Second bit of advice, he says, love God first, and then he says, teach your children. Teach your children. Verse 6, keep these words that I commanded you today in your heart. Teach them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as emblems on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. Wow, interesting verse, isn't it? 
See, we are to be the teachers of our children and our grandchildren and teachers of the extended family of God. And not just with words. In fact, not primarily with words, but with our lives. With what we model from morning until night, day in and day out. Far too often we want to relegate the responsibility of our teaching of our children to others. So we want lots of good Sunday school classes and religious education and, and, and good youth groups and teen community centers and summer camps and weekend retreats. And those are all valuable and important and we need to do it. But don't depend on them to teach your children what it means to have a relationship with God. To walk with God. No, we as parents have been given the responsibility and we are members of a larger community that also assumes responsibility for each other and for each other's children. You know what? The greatest gift, the most important gift that we can give to our children is the gift of faith. The love and life that God provides for their future. It is more important than all the material stuff that you can give them. It is more important than the best education in the finest academic institutions of our land that you can provide for them. It is more important than the healthiest, strongest, most beautiful bodies that you can arrange for them. You see, they can have all of that and not know how to live life with meaning and success and fulfillment and hope. Teach your children. Teach your children. Thirdly, remember your blessings. Notice what he says, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, A land with fine, large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of good things that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now comes the real line that I don't want you to miss. And when you have eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't be a forgetter, is what Moses is saying. That's one of the greatest dangers that faces us all the time in our Christian journey. That when we are in possession of this new land, this gift land and gift life, that we will forget God who gave it all to us in the first place. And so we turn to other gods in our culture, in our society, and in our world. And we become idolaters. Forgetfulness is an ever-present danger, folks. 
And not just forgetting God, but to forget that we live by grace and only by grace. And you know, sometimes we can get a little legalistic and we can get a little critical and we can get a little judgmental of the broken world around us. Don't you ever forget that the only reason you have a walk with God is because of God's grace to you and to me. And that will always help us to be gracious and kind and loving in a world that needs to hear about God's love. Don't forget that all we have and are is really gift. Everything is gift. All given by God out of his great love for us. And that every day, really, think about it, is a gift. To be lived in love and faithfulness and not wasted, but invested in God and in others. You see, we truly live in Graceland. All gift by God. And then the last instruction. Oh, let me just reference. You know what's wonderfully helpful to us as a body of believers in this business of not forgetting? Communion. I think you had it last week, right? And what's communion all about? Do this in remembrance of me, right? So every time we celebrate around the table, we remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we could never do for ourselves. And we are filled once again with greatness. And our memory is rekindled about who really has blessed us with his incredible love and grace. And then the final thing he says, I just want to touch on it quickly because our time is gone. Tell your story. He says, tell your story. Right? When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and statutes and ordinances the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, and then they tell the story of how they were in bondage and, and, and hopeful, hopeless oppression and how God brought them out and brought them into this new land. Listen, tell your children and your grandchildren about God's love and rescue in your life. Tell them your story of Jesus and, and his love for you at work in you. Tell it. They want to hear it. They need to hear it. Tell them of his grace and forgiveness and goodness to you. Again and again and again. Tell them how he delivered you out of your Egypt and brought you into his new realm of freedom and joy and hope and peace and forgiveness. Listen, if you are a Christian, you have a story to tell. Tell that story. Share that story with your own family and with other families and with the family of faith. Tell it again and again. But you know what? You can't tell a story until you have 
your story to tell. And if you're here this morning and you've never started your story with God, hey, I can't think of a better day. Can't think of a better day than today. God loves you. And he will take you right into his graceland to live with him with incredible satisfaction and joy and hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. There is not one of us in this room who in any self-righteous way could ever make claim to the new life that you share with us. And so we receive it again from you, strictly by gift. Help us to walk with joy and hope and enthusiasm in this new Graceland, loving you first, teaching our children, being grateful again and again for all your blessings, and sharing our own journey with everyone who needs to hear it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.